If you have a Bible with you this morning, or you can open that Bible app, grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. But I want to invite you to join me in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. This morning we're going to be talking about our Christian identity, who we are as a people because of our faith. And remember, when we study through the letters of Paul uh, that he writes to the Galatians, the initial letter of 13 that he has written in the New Testament, Paul is communicating what we are calling the essential gospel, the basics of the gospel. The primary question that Paul is trying to answer here is, how is a person saved? That's what he's getting at as he's addressing this controversy in South Galatia over whether a person has to do good works in order to be saved, by if they have to keep a bunch of religious rules in order to be accepted by God, or if a person is simply saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And what we've seen throughout this letter is that Paul has been kind of making this systematic argument here where he is building one thing on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. But he's basically emphasizing different aspects of exactly the same truth. And he'll continue to do that throughout the the first four chapters of Galatians. And he is taking this subject extremely seriously because he knows that, that what he's writing about is at the heart and soul of Christianity. So today... We're going to talk a little bit about our Christian identity in the Lord, who we are because of God's grace, and who we are because we have placed our faith in Him. You know, a lot of people that I know have some desire to know who they are and where they've come from, which is part of the reason why the genealogical business is such a booming business right now, with things like Ancestry.com and all of these other websites that Uh, Make it easier than ever to find out your own personal family lineage, who you are and where you've come from. Now, I've never really gotten into those things very deeply, but my grandma on my dad's side of the family, uh, a number of years back, did some digging around and found uh, a number of documents and even some artifacts that were related to our family history. And it's kind of interesting to read those stories, to actually get to hold some of those different things. And they've been significant to my ancestors down through the generations. Well, I actually brought something with me here this morning. I brought one of those things with me. It's a a little kid's rocking chair. And um, my, my parents had this thing in their house when I was growing up. When Sue and I got married and moved to Chicago, uh, soon after that, they passed this uh, chair on to me so that I could uh, take care of it and I could pass it on to the next generation. I believe this was my great-great-grandpa who made this thing. His name was Christian Kreider, but um, he, he liked to make things with his hands. He liked to carve things out of wood. This chair was something that he made for his oldest son, to pass down to the oldest son of the family throughout the generations. Now, I hardly ever let anyone sit in this thing, and uh, hardly ever let anyone even touch this thing, because I don't want it to be broken. And it's kind of surreal to even think that I'm actually holding this thing that, that has been around in our family for generations, and it's been in a lot of different people's possessions. Uh, but you know what? Um, 
just the, the different things of exploring our past and our family history can give us a real sense of identity and what it is that makes us who we are and why we do some of the things we do even to this day. So family genealogy and identity can have an important place in our lives. Uh, but did you know that it is also important to know your spiritual identity as well? And you can know your spiritual identity. In fact, the Bible teaches that you and I were created in the image of God. That very, from the very beginning in Genesis, we're told this, that, that we were created in the image of God after God's likeness. And I think that because of that, there is this natural longing inside all of us that, that has been put there by God to want to know God. I think that everyone has that longing. Uh, people call themselves atheists, that, that they don't believe in God, that they don't believe there is a God, but I don't buy that. I, I think that, that you may want to not believe God. You may want to choose to go in a different way, a different direction, but God puts a little bit of himself inside each and every single human being that causes us to want to know who he is and what he's about. And certainly that's very true for those of us who have been connected to God by faith. We want to know that God exists. We want to hear from him and talk to him and connect with him. And the beautiful thing about that is that you don't have to hope that you, that, that can happen. You don't have to spend your, a, big part, a better part of your life hoping that somehow you're going to be able to find God. No, the Bible teaches us that that's something that you can know. You can know God. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 says, I write these things that you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And that's a little bit about what Paul is talking about here, that you can know that you belong to God. The greatest thing in my life is the absolute certainty that I myself am a child of God. And you can know that too. Jesus, uh, Jesus loved me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You can know that you are a child of God. And this is the spirit in which the, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Galatians here in Galatians chapter 3, near the end of the chapter. And we're going to pick it up here, reading in verse 23. Your Bible's open in front of you, but I want to invite you to follow along with me as I read this. Again, verse 23 is where we're going to pick it up, and Paul writes this. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of, of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So let's talk about our Christian identity for a few minutes here this morning. 
some things that you and I can know alongside the reality that we indeed belong to Christ. Listen, if you know that you belong to Christ, then there are at least three things from this passage here that are true of you. And, and you can see these three things that are written on the backside of your program here this morning. But the first one is just this. If you belong to Christ, then you are a child of God. If you belong to Christ, you are a child of God. The key statement here is found in verse 26 where it says this. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, let me just say this morning that this is both an inclusive and an exclusive statement at the same time. And you say, well, how could that be? Uh, Well, the, the statement is inclusive in that this phrase, the sons of God... Uh, It includes both men and women, and it's called patriarchal language that's being used here. But but let let me just assure you here this morning, ladies, that Paul is not leaving you out. That, That he uses exclusive language to communicate an inclusive truth. In fact, some translations, in order to kind of clear up this confusion, will say something like this. You are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's trying to communicate here. And so it's inclusive in the sense that both men and women are children of God if they've put their faith in Jesus Christ. But this statement is also exclusive in that this word all does not mean every single person who's ever lived. All sometimes means everyone But sometimes it means everyone in a particular category of people, right? And what's the qualifier here? The qualifier is, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So, who is Paul talking to? Who's Paul making this statement to? He's talking to the church. All of you who are believers, all of you who are part of the family of God, all of you who have been born again, all y'all are children of God. And you've become children of God in Christ Jesus, not because of works of the law, as Paul has made very clear in, in this book, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say this morning that the world would, would want you to believe otherwise. The world would have you believe that all people everywhere, regardless of what it is that they believe, are already children of God. But the Bible says that you and I have to become children of God. Yes, we've all been created by God. Yes, we are all offsprings of God. Yes, we, we've all uh, come from the creative hand of God. But you have to become a child of God, which is the biblical concept of adoption. God made you, but that doesn't mean that you are automatically part of his family. You are automatically part of his creation, but there's a big difference between being created by him and being a part of his spiritual family. Uh, for, For that, the Bible says that you must be born again. That's what Jesus said. Not, you know what, you ought to be born again. No, he said you must be born again. It is necessary that you be born again. Necessary for what? Necessary for you to become a child of God. Here's what it says in John chapter 1 and verse 12. But to all who did receive him, Jesus Christ, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, you have to become a child of God. You are not automatically a child of God simply by being born. Becoming a child of God is a spiritual action that is a result of faith in Jesus Christ. And what Paul's doing here is he gives us a before picture. Before you became a child of God, this is what you were like. And then he gives us two pictures here. He gives us two metaphors to describe what life was like before we became children of God. The first is that we were prisoners in need of freedom. And the second is that we were minors in need of a guardian. Prisoners in need of freedom, minors in need of a guardian. Both of those things have to do with our former relationship to the Old Testament law of God that Paul has been talking about throughout these first three chapters of Galatians. And he reminds us here this morning that the first thing that the law did was to kind of function as a jailer in our lives. Now, now that doesn't really sound very great, does it? Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. You see, it is faith in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ that sets us free from the prison house of sin and the condemnation that we were held under by the law. Paul's language is very clear. We were held captive under the law. We were cooped up. We were hemmed in. And that's what the law did. That it held us in kind of this prison. Because when you try to keep the law but you can't, that's bondage. That's like being in chains. That's being held captive. It keeps us from living freely. This is what, it, what we mean when we talk about the bondage of sin. This is why the gospel is good news. Because God sent his only begotten son to deliver us from the prison house, the bondage that sin and the law kept us in. So this is how the law condemns us. We can't keep the commands of God even if we try to keep the commands of God. We are frustrated by that reality. And we find ourselves in the prison house from which we are unable on our own to set ourselves free. Friends, the law is a jailer and we need liberation. We need freedom from the bondage of the law. But secondly, Paul describes the law as a guardian. Verses 24 and 25 say this. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That word guardian is a word that is exclusive to the Apostle Paul. He uses it three times in the New Testament, twice here in these verses, and then once in the, the letter to the Corinthians. Now this word uh, that, that's translated guardian here, it literally means child development, or it means a child guide. And, and this guardian, this child guide, was not fundamentally a teacher, although they did do some teaching, but, but he was more of like a nanny for the boys of the house. He, he would be responsible for overseeing the, the child's development. 
He, he would get the child to and from his schooling. He would be responsible for disciplining the child. He'd be responsible for the moral upbringing of the child, usually from the time that the child was like six years old until they would reach maturity, adulthood, 16, 17 years old. And so in most Roman households, there was this guardian, a child guide, that was given the responsibility of overseeing the development of this child's life. And the most notable thing about this, and you'll see this in some of the ancient Greek art, but it's not uncommon for you to see a child standing beside a much older man. And a lot of times that much older man is the picture of this child guide, this guardian, and he is holding in his hand a cane, something like this. And I probably don't have to draw a picture for you of how this cane was used and what he did with this cane. The most common portrayal of the guardian, the child guide, was this strict disciplinarian. Maybe you've seen movies like this before. Maybe you've even experienced this before where there's this child and they're sitting at their desk and they're working and the teacher doesn't like something and so they grab like a thick ruler or something like that and they come over to the child's desk and they smack them on the, the, the knuckles until they even start bleeding. This is the picture of the guardian, the, the child guide. Only they had a cane. And so understanding that, Paul says that that is the function of the law, that it served in your life, that the law was like this overseer until uh, God's plan of redemption ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ finally arrived for you. The, the law was your strict tutor, so to speak. It was your strict overseer, the chief disciplinarian, a, a rather cruel uh, punisher. It's a very good description of how the law can function in your life. That the law can be a very cruel thing. Because the fact is that you, you can know the law, but there's no way that you're ever going to be able to keep the law perfectly. I mean, just think about the Ten Commandments, for instance. And you might think about them, and you might think about a couple of them where you say, you know what, I'm pretty good on those. I mean, I keep those things pretty good. Like... Thou shalt not murder. I'm good on that one. But then Jesus gets to the New Testament. And what would he say? He says, listen, if you have hatred in your heart towards somebody, you have committed murder in your heart. And it's like the cane comes right back out and it smacks you across the face. Boom, boom. And that's the function of the law. It's just laying us to waste. It lays, it, it, it leaves us battered and bruised. We're trying to keep up with it, but we can't keep up with it. And every time we fall short, the cane comes back out again. Friends, this is a masterful illustration. And this is why Paul, earlier on in Galatians, said that the law puts us under a curse. That we are cursed because we try to live up to it, but we can't live up to it. And when we fall short of the law, it, it, it's all, it, it's really uh, right behind us, ready to discipline us. And one of the things that is true about the law is that it never spares the rod. Now, interestingly, just a few verses earlier in verse 19, which we didn't read this morning, Paul would ask this question. Why then the law? In other words, what's the whole purpose of giving the law then? 
It's a good question to ask. And I want to give you three reasons here this morning, just very briefly. Paul talks a lot more about this in Romans chapter 3, 6, and 7. But I just want to address this here. Why was the law given? Number one, so that we would know what sin is. So that we would know what sin is. For example, Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law doesn't cause sin, but but the law gives us a basis for knowing um, something is sinful that we have done in our lives. For example, how would you know that it was wrong to steal something that didn't belong to you if it wasn't written down that, that it said, thou shall not steal? And so if there wasn't something written down like that, you wouldn't know any better. And so you just go into a store and you see something that you wanted and you just take it without paying for it. But you you know that that is not the way you should act and that's not what you should do because God's holy moral law has been written down. And so the first reason why we have the law is because God gives us a clear, defined picture of what sinful behavior is. But then secondly, the second reason for the law that it was given was to convict us of our sin. To convict us of our sin. Now now that we know what's right and what's wrong, because we have a clear, defined, written standard, we can now know when we are disobeying God. The, the, the whole idea of knowing that we've disobeyed God is that it is to drive us to confess that sin and to repent of that sin in order that we might come back to God. Friends, the law makes us aware that not only are, were, were, were there things that we have violated that we can violate, but it, it makes us aware that, 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 that when we do violate those things, we are sinners in the eyes of God. Because we have violated those rules. And that's what the law does. It helps us to understand not only what sin is, but it helps us to understand our relationship to that. Namely, that we ourselves are sinners. Which is supposed to drive us to a better way of knowing and relating to God. And that brings us to the third reason for the law. The law was given, finally, to reveal our need for a Savior. To reveal our need for a Savior. The law is there to condemn. The law is not there to save. The law is there to show us how desperately we are in need of being saved. It's there to show us that we are incapable of doing this on our own. And so the law is necessary. Because without the law, we'd never know just how sinful we really are. And again... That's the disciplinary aspect of the law. That the law is there to break out the cane. And remind us that every time we disobey, we are incapable of finding our own way to God by ourselves. Phil Riken, who is the current president at Wheaton College. uh, Wheaton College is just west of here, 45 minutes. But he makes this great statement. He says this. The law is the on-ramp to the gospel highway. The more we know the law, the more we see our sin, and the more we confess that we need a Savior. That is a great statement. The law is there to help us find Jesus. It is there to drive us to a way of salvation that we cannot conjure up in our own strength. 
And so the essence of the first part of this passage in Galatians chapter 3 is that before Christ came, the law was a jailer that kept us in bondage. And the law was a guardian that acted as a strict disciplinarian, telling us what to do and smacking us across the back of the head whenever we fell short of that. But all of that changed in the coming of Jesus Christ because now in Christ, because of faith, we are now set free from the prison house and we are no longer minors under the guidance of a cruel taskmaster. In Christ, we, are, we have become children of God. And so the first thing is, that's the first thing. But let me just show you a second thing here this morning. Not only... Do we, can we know that we are children of God? But secondly, if you belong to Christ, you are a member of God's family. You're a member of God's family. Verses 26, or 27 and 28 say this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Two very important things right here. The first reminds us of our union with Christ, our vertical relationship with Him. And then secondly, we are reminded of our communion with others, our horizontal relationship with others who also belong to the family of God. First, our union with Christ. And again, two things happen here in salvation. Paul uh, calls the first, uh, first of all, that he says that we were baptized into Christ. And then secondly, he says that if you're baptized into Christ, we put on Christ. Now, what does it mean to be baptized into Christ? Baptism doesn't make it right for, uh, doesn't make us right with God. Baptism doesn't save us. We, we know that Paul's not suggesting that here because he has shown over and over again that we are not saved by our good works. We're not saved by baptism. We're not saved by circumcision, by keeping of the moral law. No, when Paul mentions baptism here, he's not talking about water baptism. He is talking about spirit baptism, about being baptized by the Holy Spirit, which is a requirement for salvation. In fact, there is no salvation apart from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That, that the moment you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are baptized in and by the Holy Spirit. That He comes and He dwells inside of you. Water baptism is an outward demonstration of what has happened inside of you. Now, if you drop dead before you're water baptized, but you've been spirit baptized, then you're going to go straight to heaven when you die. You don't have to be water baptized in order to be saved. But you do have to be spirit baptized in order to be saved. Because there is no real baptism apart from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think that that's fundamentally what Paul's talking about here. This spiritual cleansing that comes instantaneously as a response of faith in Jesus Christ. Water baptism follows that. It is an external symbol of what's already happened to you on the inside. That the water doesn't make you clean, but it is a symbol of the cleansing that's already taken place by the baptism of the Holy Spirit where you've been washed by the divine power of the Spirit at work in you. So salvation is described here by being 
uh, baptized into Christ. But then there's another description that is used here when he says that you put on Christ. These are two ways of saying really the same thing. That if you've been spirit baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ, you've been clothed, you clothe yourself in Christ, you cover yourself with Christ. It's kind of like putting on new clothes, that you take off the old, dirty clothes of sin and self, that God strips us of those old, dirty rags, and then by faith, we put on brand new clothes in Christ. It's Christ's righteousness that's placed on us, that we are clothing ourselves with Christ, which is significant, that we're living a whole new life in Him. So that's the first thing, that we have this union with Christ because of faith. But then, at the same time, God gives us an extra blessing. He doesn't just leave us by ourselves. He is in us to walk with us and walk through us for the rest of our lives. But then then he places us in the context of a larger family called the church to do life together. Some of you probably remember that old song, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You see, God saves us in order to do life together as a family. And this is a one another kind of faith. That we we express faith in service and in worship and in our union with Jesus Christ. We do all of that together. We call that communion with one another. Paul affirms that here in verse 28, one of the most memorized verses in the entire Bible, when he says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Listen, I don't have to tell you this morning that there is so much that divides us in our world today. We're a divided people. We're divided over uh, racial lines. We're divided over social lines. We're divided over sexual lines, over political lines. And, and Paul mentions three of these barriers right here. Race and social status and sex. Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. And yet, these three things seem to be the things that are the primary dividing walls in our world even to this day. We're divided over matters of race, but Paul says that there is, no, there is neither Jew nor Greek. We're divided over matters of socioeconomic status, but Paul says that there is neither slave nor free. And there is a great sexual divide that is now heightened in our world more than it's ever been in my lifetime. And yet Paul says, not to the world at large, but to the body of Christ, he says there is, there is neither male nor female. Now, you think, about it, you think about it once, that this is where all of the great societal battle lines have historically been drawn. And you think about the, the, those different questions that might get asked of like, well, what's your skin color and what country were you born in and where, where, where do you, where do you uh, work? What, what, where, where do you make a living? How do you make a living? How much money do you have? You think, are, are you made of sugar and spice and everything nice or snips and snails and puppy dog tails? And we're still fighting over all these same things today, 2,000 years after this was written. 
And what was the biggest thing that was the issue in South Galatia as it relates to this whole controversy that was going on there? Well, it was race. Are you? Uh, it was Jews against Gentiles. And Paul says, look, in the body of Christ, we are all part of one large family. We all have the same spiritual DNA because we have a common faith in Jesus Christ. And so those societal divisions, they're, they're not community divisions that are to be a part of the body of Christ. Friends, this is a hugely important statement because Paul is saying that, that there is no segregation in the body of Christ. There is no segregation in the body of Christ. The artificial divisions that have been put up by our society have now been torn down in Jesus Christ. Listen, there is no room in the body of Christ to talk about each other by using terms like those people. There are no those people in the church. There are no those people in the family of God. The word that is used in the family of God is the word us. Us. That is the primary word that we use. Now let me just be clear about this. We still do have different skin tones. And we still keep our sex, which we were born with. We still keep our educational status and all of that. But Paul's point is that none of that stuff determines either our standing before God or our communion with one another. There is no segregation in the body of Christ because we are all family. Now, like most families, we are a family who has more than a few ugly warts. There, we've got some warts. And we've got some problem children. And we've got a, a few uh, sheep who have gone astray. But we are all connected by the same DNA. And the truth is that we are supposed to love one another unconditionally. I had a guy come to me one time and said, you know what? You've been at St. Paul's Bible Church for a long, long time. Like 20 years. I mean, you, you can't actually believe that all of those people over all those years have loved you. You don't believe that, do you? And I said, well, I don't know, but they're supposed to. They're supposed to if they're a part of the body of Christ. We are all supposed to share the unconditional love of Jesus Christ that, he, that, that we demonstrate that to one another. Why? Because we are the church. We belong to God and we belong to each other. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So number one. If you belong to Christ, you are a child of God. Number two, if you belong to Christ, you are a member of God's family. And then finally and very briefly, if you belong to Christ, you are a descendant of Abraham. You say, well, I'm not a Jew, but that doesn't matter. Now in Christ, being a descendant of Abraham becomes more of a spiritual thing than a physical thing. And this is a radical statement for Paul to make in the midst of this uh, Galatians controversy here. Because all of these false teachers that are down there in South Galatia, they, 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 they come in behind Paul and they're saying the exact opposite of what he's saying. First, you people need to become children of Abraham before you can become a child of God. And, and do you know what Paul says in this statement right here? He says, you know what? If you know Jesus, you already are. You already are part of the lineage of Abraham. Verse 29. And if you are Christ, if you are Christ, 
Then you are Abraham's offspring, heir according to promise. What, what Paul's saying here is all believers, whether you are Jewish believers or Gentile believers, all believers become children of Abraham because you are children of God. Remember, Abraham was saved in the same way we are. We read about this just a couple of weeks back in verses 6 and 7 of the same chapter where it said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now, now this is really important because not only does Paul say that we are descendants of Abraham, but he goes one step further when he says that we are heirs of the very promises that God made to Abraham so many years ago. So all of those promises that God made to Abraham back in the book of Genesis are now being fulfilled in those of us who are believers. And it has nothing to do with physical genealogy, but it has everything to do with faith, with spiritual genealogy. This is our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know who you really are? read a story just a couple of days ago about a woman in China who had traveled to her son's wedding. I think this happened like a few months ago, but her son was getting married. She had never met her future daughter-in-law before. She, she gets there and everyone just is kind of mingling, hanging out, fellowshipping together. And for the first time, she is about to meet this woman who is soon to be her daughter-in-law. Well, they they talk for a few minutes, and as they're talking, this woman looks down, and she notices that there's a very unusual birthmark on this this woman's hand, this young woman's hand, and so it's a very familiar uh, birthmark, a very similar birthmark to the one that her daughter had. Her daughter, who 20 years earlier had been lost, apparently as a result of some kind of kidnapping that had taken place. So she hadn't seen her daughter in 20 years, and uh, she didn't know what happened to her. Well, they visit for a little while, and while they're talking, someone actually remarked about how much they looked so much alike. And this woman begins to put two and two together, and she gets really bold. And she goes over to the bride's parents and she says to them, hey, I'm going to ask you a very direct question and I hope you don't find this offensive, but is this your natural born daughter or was she adopted? And they say, well, the funny thing is that uh, we, we adopted her over 20 years ago or about 20 years ago now. And the conversation continued on. Other family members are brought into this and to make a long story very, very short, this woman finds out that this young lady, the one that she was, was going to be her daughter-in-law, is actually her daughter by birth. We have a picture that we're going to put up on the screen of this, but they, there was this great celebration that was going on there that day. Until somebody said, wait a minute, you're telling me that this boy who is your son has fallen in love with and is now about to marry his sister? And the people stopped dancing and celebrating really quickly because they realized that we have a potentially big problem on our hands. Until the mother, smiling from ear to ear, said, well, here's the thing, is that when my daughter, my, my natural daughter, um, this, this is her, but when, when I lost her, when she was kidnapped, when she was taken away, I, I decided to adopt and I adopted my son at that point 20 years ago. 
And everybody got excited once again. Everybody got excited once everybody knew who everybody was. Do you know who you are? The Bible teaches that if you are in Christ, you are a child of God. Do you know that? The Bible teaches that if you are in Christ, you are part of God's universal worldwide family together with everybody else who is a child of God. Do you know that? And the Bible teaches that if you are in Christ, not only do you belong to God and not only do you belong to other people in this family, but you also belong to Abraham. That you are part of this long historic lineage from the very beginning where God said, I am establishing a people holy and righteous unto myself who belong to me now and forevermore. You can know who you are. But the only way to truly know who you are is through simple but committed faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose again so that you could become his forever child. Let's pray.